Nope. Yeah, that one. Thank you very much. Okay. Today is the day of technical difficulties. So yesterday was February 22nd. February 22nd, 1980. 40 years ago yesterday, the USA hockey team beat the juggernaut that was the national team of Russia. And they do call it the Miracle on Ice. There's a movie about it. Um, is that, who is that? That's Kurt Russell, right? Kurt Russell plays the coach. The movie's called Miracle. And it really was considered to be a miracle by everybody who experienced it. Al Michaels, who was one of the announcers of the game, ended the play-by-play by saying, Do you believe in miracles? Yes, so go, go to the slide. I think we've got that video clip. Okay, next slide. I was six years old, so I barely remember that. And I, I didn't know why it was a big deal. I'm like, well, you know, what's going on? From Wikipedia. The Miracle on Ice was a medal round game during the men's ice hockey tournament at the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York, played between the hosting United States and the four-time defending gold medalists, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had won the gold medal in five of the six previous Winter Olympic Games, which only happened every four years then, and they were the favorites to win once more in Lake Placid. Their team consisted primarily of professional players with significant experience in international play. By contrast, the United States team, led by head coach Herb Brooks, not the guy from Mullins, comprised mostly of amateur players. With only four players with minimal minor league experience, the United States was the youngest team in the tournament and in U.S. national team history. This was one of those David and Goliath type of things. It was highly... Improbable, it was highly improbable, some would have said maybe even impossible, for the younger, less experienced, smaller American team to beat the superior in every way team, Russians. If you haven't seen that movie, you need to watch it. It's excellent. It's great. And there's some cuss words in it, just so you know, okay? So Al Michaels said, Do you believe in miracles? Now, what's a miracle? The definition of miracle, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is, quote, a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. For all intents and purposes, it would seem that there was some sort of divine intervention in place for these events to transpire for the United States hockey team. No one save maybe the American team themselves, believe this could happen. But sometimes the impossible becomes the possible. What we're going to look at today in Matthew 14 is a true bona fide miracle of the highest order. And actually, what we're going to look at today is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. The only one outside of the resurrection So let's look at Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. If you would, please stand as we read the Bible. Ha ha. 
Matthew 14, we're starting in verse 13, we'll read through verse 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Let's pray. God, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, open our lives to the truth of your word, to the truths of who you are and what you are capable of. Holy Spirit, draw us to yourself as we see the miracle-working power of the Son of God. Teach us, instruct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, we had left Jesus going off in a boat to a desolate place. Verse 13 says, by himself. Um, The question is, were the disciples with him? Probably. Okay. Um, By himself, in Jesus' terms, means his disciples are with him. He's away from the crowd. And he had just heard of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. Jesus' life... And his public ministry had been an up-and-down, roller-coaster type of deal, basically from before he was born. All the drama and intrigue of his predicted virgin birth, the escape to Nazareth, the return and the decision to settle, um, the escape to Egypt. Sorry, they're right there together. The escape to Egypt, the return and the decision to settle in remote Nazareth, the obscurity there, then his baptism, his temptation, and beginning of his teaching and healing. And that first part of his public working was magnificent. He healed masses of people. He trained and sent out his disciples. The crowds loved him, but the religious elites hated him and repudiated him. Then after he was rejected by the Jewish religious establishment, which is what we saw in chapters 11 and 12 specifically of Matthew, he began to withdraw. He kind of started pulling back from the limelight. doesn't mean the crowds weren't around. They were there. But he started to focus on his disciples predominantly and he began to make his march toward the cross, which was going to be a solitary event for him. And he would speak more of his death, more of his burial, more of his resurrection from this time on. And that's where we pick up today. It's in a time of withdrawing. So to place this, his public popularity had soared and then it had soured. Okay? So people, remember John the Baptist had even wondered, are you the one? The Pharisees said he does what he does by the power of Beelzebub. People are kind of scratching their head at him. He's making more and more gigantic statements. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm greater than the Sabbath, something greater than Solomon, something greater than Jonah's here. And people are going, ugh, you're making us a little bit uncomfortable. But we like what you do. 
So he's kind of withdrawing. A time he's going to try to get away from the crowds, a time of speaking in ways we had said that hid truth from some and revealed it to others. And now as we begin in verse 13, we see this same Jesus looking to be alone in order to grieve, to get away from the hubbub and the crush of the crowd, but it was not to be. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, speaking of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When you're as well known and as sought after as Jesus was, you just, you don't get away. Okay? He had sought to get alone, maybe spend some time with his disciples, but the crowds heard it. Jesus had snuck off, but somebody saw it, somebody heard it, the paparazzi found him, right? And it just got around pretty quickly. Now the question is, where was he? I think I've got a map next, I think. There we go. Okay, so this is the Sea of Galilee. He had been up in the top left part there in uh, Capernaum. And this is what John MacArthur says, pointing out where he was. Um, You don't have to go back to the verse, by the way. Now, as to what place he went, Luke tells us he went to a place called Bethesda or Bethsaida. And basically, there were two of those. One on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and one on the western The one on the east was identified as Bethsaida Julia because it was named by Philip the Tetrarch for the daughter of Augustus Caesar. Luke says that's where he went. So that's what MacArthur says. And if MacArthur is right, he was over there in the top right. That's Bethsaida. You can't see that. I can barely, barely see it. Um, So that's where MacArthur says that he went. He went from the top left to the top right. Okay? Other people say... If, I don't know if y'all can see where it says desolate place. <laughs> Let's call this desolate place. Some people said that he left that top corner and kind of sailed down to the left there and was in that desolate place. Where was he? I don't know. I tend to trust John MacArthur as far as his historical perspective and, and names and places. Uh, MacArthur said he'd actually been to the place there on the right-hand side. I don't know where he was exactly. Um, but these crowds knew where Jesus was. Whether he had went east or went west, the crowds knew it. And they followed him there. They followed him on foot from the towns. Now I think this gives us some good insight into how sought after Jesus was. Especially in this time when Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds. If anyone hears where Jesus is, they're going to find him. And they're going to bring their friends. Which is exactly what happened here. To what extent? Well, let's look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, I want to include here verse 21 as well so we can address this great crowd statement. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, that's the end of the passage today, but that gives us an idea of how many people were there. So let's bring these two verses together. Jesus comes ashore in his effort to get away, and he finds there a great crowd. Some of them beat him there. How great? Well, verse 21 says that the crowd was, that was the ultimate recipient of Jesus' miraculous feeding numbered about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, was there a woman and a child for every man? Probably. Probably more. And we don't know the number that Matthew gives us, and I think well, all the gospel writers give us, is 5,000 men. Well, that could have been anywhere between. It was more than 5,000 because there were women and children. And... Safe estimates say it's more like 25,000 people. Now, I don't know how many we have here this morning. 46 people here this morning. 
Okay. So let's say we're around 50. 25,000 people for him to be alone with. 25,000 people. And that, that's the number we're going to work with. 25,000 people were there when Jesus showed up to be alone. Now imagine his frustration at seeing 25,000 people at his retreat. Guys, we're going on a retreat. It's going to be real quiet. We're just you know, going to have some quiet time, some alone time. We're just going to focus on each other, okay? 25,000 people show up. I can just hear Jesus. Well, this is just great. I try to get alone, and all these freaks, all these geeks are hassling and hounding me. Peter, can you cut somebody's ear off and maybe thin this crowd out a little bit? <laughs> is that what happened? No, not at all. Look at verse 14 again. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Wow. This man, this God man. Jesus, fresh off receiving the news of the death of his cousin, looking to get away, arrives ashore to a horde of people who need helped. People who need blessed, people who need healed, people who need served, people who need ministered to. And Jesus does it. And not only did he do it, the text says that he had compassion on them and healed their sick. That word compassion is a 50 cent Greek word. Okay, pull it up. I think I got it up there. This is fun. Just look at that word. Look at that word. That is a thing of beauty. Okay. There's, there's an G-C-H-N together right there in the middle of it. You won't get that anywhere else, okay? Splagnizomai. Splagnizomai. I don't know how to say it. I'm from Helen. I'm not from Greece. It says here it means to have compassion, to be moved with compassion, to be moved as to one's bowels. Hence, to be moved with compassion, to have compassion, for the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. He had compassion on them. He felt it in the seat of love and pity. And note that it infers being moved. It means to do something about the love and pity in a meaningful way. It means to help alleviate the suffering that is being seen and being felt with these people. Our English word compassion literally means to suffer with. Passion is suffer, and the prefix C-O-M means with, to suffer with. Jesus sees those needing healed and ministered to, and he feels it so deeply that he does something about it. He does what only he can do. He meets their needs. He heals their diseases. He blesses them. And like the promised Messiah to come, he suffers at their side, is with them and for them. In this crowd of maybe 25,000 people, Jesus reaches out to take their suffering upon himself and heal them and bless them. This is Jesus. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. But we're not done yet. Actually, we're just beginning. Verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. Look on the map, right? 
and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So now it seems we have a slight problem. Um, now evening is upon them, and Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, um, uh, Hey Jesus, um, we're, we're near nothing and nowhere. Uh, it's near the end of the day. So if you would, please, it'd be great if you'd send this mass of people away so that they can buy themselves something to eat. Now that's code for it's late, we're hungry, and we ain't got nothing to eat. So send this crowd away so maybe we can scrounge up something for ourselves to eat. Maybe it wasn't quite that selfish. But they had to be tired. They had to be weary. They had to be hungry themselves. It's been a long day of serving. And they're out here in no man's land. There's not even a McDonald's or a Subway. And it's dinner time. And even if there was something nearby that maybe where they could get some food, they couldn't afford to buy food for 25,000 people. How does anybody hope to find enough, much less buy enough food to feed thousands of people? And while they may have had a purse that helped fund their ministry, they did, which Judas carried around, by the way, they could not see any chance of having any chance, any chance, any chance of feeding 25,000 people. So they politely asked Jesus, send this rabble away. But Jesus, verse 16, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Jesus addresses their concerns and call for sending the crowd away with this. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Okay. Now what? They need not go away. Now Jesus is not saying that this crowd doesn't need food. He's saying they don't need to go away to get it. He looks at his disciples and says, straight-faced, and what Jason read earlier this morning, he knew what he was going to do. So he was testing them. You give them something to eat. Go ahead, guys. Knock yourself out. I want to see how you handle this. Give these several thousand folks some food. Come on, snap to it. Get busy. Somebody text DoorDash and get them to come out here to this desolate, tell them we're a desolate place. Come on, guys, these people are hungry. You give them something to eat. And then verse 17, they reply. <laughs> they said to him, uh, uh, We have only five loaves here and two fish. <laughs> now, my question is, is this a serious statement? <laughs> is this their true effort? Or are they just bailing themselves out of any responsibility? I'm not sure. But we know that this food wasn't even theirs. John's account of the event in John 6, 8 through 9, is what Jason read this morning, says this. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? They, sold, they stole some little boy's lunch. <laughs> All right? We got, we got some loaves and some fish, five and two. That's all we got. And the boy's like, but, 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 mama packed that for me. Really, guys, this is all you got? Now, I can't imagine that Andrew was supposing that Jesus would really use this snack. There's no way he was serious, I don't think. 
Maybe. Five barley loaves, two fish. Let me make sure we're clear as to what this means. First, barley was the cheapest grain in the area. It's poor folk food. It's commodity wheat, okay? I mean, it's like block cheese and butter, you know what I'm saying? And loaves don't mean a loaf of bread like we think about it, more like a, like a, like a little lunchable type cake, okay? That's, that's what loaves means. Portable, durable bread that could be stored or carried for long periods of time by just about anybody. And the fish were probably just little salted or pickled little fish that could be carried also easily anywhere by anyone. So it's not like there was any hope, any hope at all, that this tiny bit of food could feed more than this one little boy. Well, and maybe not even him well. And they say to his command to give this crowd something to eat, well, we managed to snag some kid's bag lunch and that's all we got. It's a hopeless situation. And they know that. And he knows that. And so Jesus responds in verse 18, and he said, bring them here to me. Jesus hears of their meager means and says, okay, I'll take it. Give me that. Now, I cannot imagine how the disciples reacted to this. Is he going to eat it? That's not like him, but I guess he's hungry too. Well, Jesus, all we got is this tiny morsel. So, uh, yeah, um, we, we, we can't really help you. We got a little bread and fish, and Jesus says, bring them here to me. He hears them. He heard their helpless plight, and he says, give me what you have, which is really nothing. Bring me your nothing. Were the disciples shocked silent? Were they looking at each other out of the sides of their eyes? Were they convinced that Jesus was delirious with grief and fatigue? Were they laughing? Incredulous? Or was their interest piqued? Were they excited to see what Jesus would do? I don't know. But Jesus says bring it and they do. Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. So get this scene. The crowd's milling around thousands and thousands of people. And Jesus just took five bread nuggets and two sardines from the disciples, who took them from a little boy, and Jesus starts directing traffic. He orders, that's what it says, he orders the crowds, to sit down on the grass. Mark gives us a little more detail in Mark 6, verses 39 through 40, when he says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Now imagine seeing this from like a bird's eye perspective. Thousands and thousands of people sitting in groups of fifties and hundreds in the grass. And Jesus then takes the meager loaves and fish and looks up to heaven where God is and says a blessing. It means he thanked God for the food. John's account actually says he gave thanks. Thanks? For what? For this little bit of food? Yes, but more than that, I think. Because he then starts breaking the food into pieces and giving the pieces to the disciples who then give the pieces to the crowd, this crowd of thousands of people. And you know what? I think we're so familiar with this story. Everybody's like, I know this story. That we've lost the wonder. We've lost the wonder of what's happening here. Of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing here. We don't marvel at it anymore. 
And how awesome is this? Jesus just keeps breaking bread, breaking fishes, handing pieces to his guys who are moving back and forth between Jesus and the crowds. I can't imagine the scope of this operation, how long it took, what it looked like, how people were responding. I don't think the people in the crowd were aware of what's going on. I guess they were just awfully happy to get some food. Maybe not even thinking about where it was, where it was coming from. I can imagine that little boy going, what in the world? I know what I gave them. I would guess that the crowd, though, was oblivious to the fact that there was a miracle going on right in front of them. Jesus wasn't flashy. He didn't make a big show of this. We we know that, that God's fed people before. He could have fed them by ravens, brought in a big flock of ravens for them to drop bread down these people. People are like, what in the world? Alfred Hitchcock started going, hmm... He could have had manna rain down from heaven. He could have done any number of miraculous looking things to make food appear. But he takes a bag lunch and just starts distributing it to the thousands of people seated there on the grass. And it turns out this woefully little bit becomes an awful lot in the hands of the Son of God. Verse 20. Verse 20. And they all ate And were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now I would ask us again to not overlook the wonder involved in this simple sentence. Thousands and thousands of people all ate until they were satisfied. They they didn't want to eat anymore. After Jesus had broken into pieces five little loaves of bread and two fish. Do you believe in miracles? Because this, folks, is a clear miracle. Remember our definition of miracle from the introduction? It's a surprising and welcome event that's not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. There is no explanation of how this happened outside of being the work of a divine agency or the divine agency. There's no natural or scientific reason or explanation here. It is physically impossible. It cannot happen outside of God doing it. Now let me say something that's going to make some people uncomfortable. God is supernatural. You're like, well, yeah. No, no, no. God is supernatural. He exists outside of His created natural world and also works within it. And here... I'm going to say something even more controversial. God can do things that we can't. God can do things that we can't. There are people who call themselves Christians who do not believe this. They say that miracles have not, will not, and cannot happen. They try to explain this story away as as just that. They try to explain it as just a story that didn't really happen. Or they try to say that Jesus just broke off little pieces. We laugh and it's funny. People say this stuff because they think that everything has to be explained by natural phenomenon. They think that God exists... Like us. That he's limited. 
that he's hindered even by his own natural creation. Some of them would even say he didn't make all this. People who call themselves Christians. They try to say it's some sleight of hand. Jesus was just a good magician. But here's the deal. It it couldn't have happened any other way than just being a miracle. A supernatural work of God. And it wasn't just that thousands of people ate and were satisfied. But when all was said and done, they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now how do you figure that number 12 is significant? How many disciples did Jesus have? 12. He had 12. How many tribes were there in the nation of Israel? There were 12. And how much food had they brought into this equation? Literally none. They stole it from a little boy. And now there's 12 baskets full of food providing for them for who knows how long. This ain't normal, y'all. This is a miracle. An overflowing, superabundant, miraculous work of the Son of God. And it's punctuated with Jesus providing a powerful visual lesson for His men. Trust me and I'll provide for you. Bring me your nothing and I'll give you all you need to serve me and to serve others. You got no food? I'll feed 25,000 people with crumbs. And make it clear that you're still a priority to me in the midst of it all. Anybody ever worry about God providing for him? Every blinking day. And 12 baskets full testify to us. I will always take care of you. But I don't like fish. Talking to myself, y'all. You got no food? I'll feed 25,000 people with crumbs and make it clear that you're a priority to me in the midst of it all. And as the disciples gathered these leftovers and lined up the baskets full of them and counted to 12, they had to hear the profound exclamation point that said to them, See! Look around and see! See who I am. See what I can do. And remember, what you could not do, I could. What you could not do, I did. What you cannot do, I will. Which brings us to application. And I'm plumb excited to share this application with you. Three C's, care, can't, and can. Care, can't, can. I don't care if a can, can, can't, can. And if it can, can, how much can, can, it can, can. I don't know. Care, can't, can. First is care. Looking at application. How do we apply what we've just seen? How do we work it out into our everyday, normal, boring lives? You're like, my life is not boring. Yes, it is. Care. The first thing that we need to do in response to what we've seen today is we've got to care. 
If our faith doesn't move us to care about and for others, especially the helpless, it's not true Christian faith. Now that's a big statement to make. And I'm going to make it again. If our faith doesn't lead us to care about and help helpless people, it's not Christian faith. What do I mean by that? We saw in our passage today that Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the crowd of people and their needs. And of course, this is not the only time we have or will see Jesus being moved with compassion. And as his followers, as those who are supposed to be like him, we are to both feel and show that same compassion. You say, I can't help what I feel. Yes, you can. All through the Old Testament, God includes in His law for His people provisions for caring for the poor, the marginalized, and the outcast. He says, don't mistreat the sojourner because you also were a sojourner in the land of Egypt. This showed His heart then, and Jesus shows that same heart here. I think I've mentioned this before. I'm sure I have. I've been here too long to not repeat stories, but if you've heard it, I don't care. Okay, I heard a pastor speak once who had spent some time in India. And his reaction after being in India around these throngs and crowds of people was that he was overwhelmed at the compassion of Jesus. There in India, this pastor was constantly in crowds being pushed, grabbed, called for to the point of sensory overload. And he pointed out that what he experienced for several days was what was experienced by Jesus during his whole ministry. But Jesus never snaps. Oh, he slips away from time to time. He's alone late at night or early in the morning, but the crowds were relentless in their pursuit of him. And he was relentless in his compassion for them. And the worse their state, the greater it seems his compassion was for them. And again, I'll say it, we should be the same. But we're good conservative Americans, right? we got principles. And there should be limits to who we can care for, right? James one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You want to know what pleases God? Visiting helpless people. Helping helpless people. You want to know what the Spirit of God is going to do in you if you release yourself to Him and trust Him to work in and through you? You're going to have compassion for helpless people and that compassion is going to move you to do something. I'm not talking about seeing the distended stomach on the commercial on TV and saying, ah, that's terrible. And I'm not saying that you write a check and send it off to that ministry. What I'm saying is you will be consumed with how can I help people? We are rich. And there are poor people out there who need what we have. Am I saying to just indiscriminately give money away? No, that's not love. That's not visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. That's writing a check to soothe your conscience. But if you don't care, you need to repent. And if you're not doing something about the caring that you have, you need to repent. Any religion that does not take into consideration what Jesus called the least of these 
is just a self-serving, conscience-soothing show that tries to make the one that observes it feel better about themselves or make other people feel better about them. We are called to feel compassion in the core of our being, in the seat of our affections for those who are in need. And then we are to move to meet those needs and alleviate any and all suffering that we can. And no, we cannot put an end to all suffering and hardship, but we can start where we are and do what we can. I don't remember who said it. I heard a preacher say one time, what you wish you could do for everybody, do for one person. And Paul would say, especially those of the household of the faith. And I think that's a great place to start this. I can't fix everything, but I can help one person. I can care deeply about one person's plight and help them. And it's not a matter of doing good things to check off boxes showing that you did good deeds. No, this is about heartfelt compassion that moves the one who feels it to meet the needs that it sees. And this is Christianity 101. This is remedial Christianity, really. This is a 90-level class. Oh, that we would be more like Jesus. Feel that compassion and show that compassion. But there's a problem. We can't. We can't. How do you make good people? We can't. How do you make people good? We can't. How do I make myself good? We can't. Which is the second application point. Can't. And this speaks to our complete inability. Please hear me say this as clearly as I can. I cannot, you cannot, we cannot do anything of spiritual value in and of ourselves. We cannot do anything of any spiritual value in and of ourselves. No compassion, no deed, no act, no nothing in and of ourselves. This is what we're talking about when we mention total depravity. We are as bad off as we can possibly be in and of ourselves. Jesus made this abundantly clear. In John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now note the totality and the finality of that statement. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Nothing. No thing. Not a thing. You can't drum up compassion. You can't meet needs. You can't help or bless or change anything or anyone. Oh, you can do these things, but they've got no spiritual value. In this realm, in what we saw today, we are the disciples trying to feed 25,000 people with a little boy's stolen brown bag lunch. That's who we are in this story. You give them something to eat. Uh... I've been thinking about, I've been trying to wrestle through what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God recently. And the first thing that I see is that I can't be filled unless I'm empty first. If there's any of me, I can't know what it means to be filled with Christ. I can't know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
if I'm leaning on my own efforts, trying my best to do greater things, harder things, better things, if there's any of me left in there, I can't be filled with the Spirit. My life, my Tower of Babel has to be demolished before the Spirit of God can use those stones to build a temple suitable for Himself to dwell in. Paul says this in the well-known verse, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I've been crucified. Crucifixion means death. I have died to myself. Unless you are denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus, you can't be His disciple. In the kingdom of the heavens, death precedes life. Only what has ceased to be and then is resurrected can be used by and for God in His kingdom. Only the confession, I can't, is valid in the economy of God. They need to go away. You give them something to eat. But Lord, we can't. We have no food of our own, much less any to give all these needy people. And Jesus looks and says, you live out this kingdom. You proclaim freedom to the captives and joy to the brokenhearted. You preach the gospel. You see dead men brought to new life in Christ. But Lord, we can't. And this is vital to understand. It's not about, well, I invited somebody to church. It's not about, well, you know, I'm trying to do that lifestyle evangelism thing. It's not about, I'll try harder to do better so that maybe I can do something that might either impress God or somebody else. Our confession in this equation is, I can't. But Lord, we can't. You give them something to eat. We are helpless to do so. And this is vital to understand. But not in and of itself, not in isolation, because our can't has to be followed up with His can. Which is the third application point. Care, can't, can. Listen, this is the good news of the gospel. This is what we've celebrated all morning. God can do what we can't do. Where we dwell in the natural, God exists in the supernatural. When I've got nothing, He's got everything. Luke 1.37, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, For nothing will be impossible with God. And we say, Amen. Amen. And then we don't live like it. Well, that was for Mary. That wasn't for us. Nothing will be impossible with God. Matthew nineteen twenty three through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
The Christian life is one that is to be lived in complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God and His power. I lay my life down because I can't do anything. God gives me His supernatural life and then He can. Through me. Through us. Galatians 2.20 again. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Oh no, that's a tragedy. Wrong. That is something to proclaim from the housetops. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Imagine the foolishness of these disciples taking these five loaves and these two fish and walking around in the crowd saying... We'll see what we can do. They wouldn't have made it out of the first group of 50. Not even first fraction of the group of 50. Before they realized, I can't do this. So they did what they should have done. They obeyed the command of Jesus, bring them to me. Give me your nothing. And watch what I do. And I know what some of you are thinking. Now, you're, you're, you're pushing the limits here. You're talking about fringe stuff. You're talking about miracles. You're talking about stuff that makes me mm, question your doctrinal purity, young man. Not so young man. Maybe. Maybe. But listen to me. Please hear me say this. The miracle power of God... Is for life. It's for your life. It's for my life. It's for everyday events and happenings. He's God. He's supernatural. He exists outside of the natural. And He has a natural order that He chooses to work in and through. But He's supernatural and can intervene any way that He chooses. But here's the deal. We don't need to have 25,000 people fed to see His miracle power. We need to love supernaturally. We need to feel compassion supernaturally. We need to be moved with compassion doing deeds of mercy and grace supernaturally. Because let me tell you something. The gospel that we believe, the gospel that we are to proclaim is what? It's supernatural. Quit saying that word. It makes me uncomfortable. Good! Shane and Shane have a song called Miracle that speaks to this. Every week I hear a story of a miracle. And if I'm honest, I'm tired of seeing none at all. I don't need to see a dead man come alive. All I want is you to fill me up inside. I need you, Lord, even more than the air I breathe. I need you, Lord, right away. I need you, Lord, every minute of every day. I need you, Lord, right away. Today, I'm asking for a miracle. Anything you got, God, big or small. I don't need to see the cancer go away. All I want is to know that it'll be okay. Because that's as much miraculous as feeding 25,000 people. Moms and dads loving your kids supernaturally is a miracle. Most people have natural affection for their children, but to love them supernaturally, it's a miracle. You can go to work every day of your life and do your job naturally. 
But what if you went there and lived supernaturally? And what if you preached a supernatural gospel in your workplace and saw dead men come back to life? Sinners invited and welcomed to the table of Jesus because of the supernatural gospel that you've preached there, because of the supernatural love that you've shown to people there. Where is the compassion? Where are the deeds and the requests that I'm asking you that will tax the miracle resources of God to meet in your life? I'm afraid we have settled for a completely natural life as Christians. Herb Hodges tells a story of a businessman who walked by this guy's office. If you've read Tally Ho the Fox, you've heard this story. You've read this story. He walked by this guy's office every day and the guy just had his feet propped up in the window with his back turned toward the door. He said, every day I just saw his feet propped up in the window. Had a big giant office overlooking the city, windows everywhere, big giant desk. Finally got fed up with it. And he went and asked his boss, he's like, who is this joker? Every day I walk by his office and I see his feet propped up and I've never seen him do anything. And the boss said, last year... That man came up with one idea that netted this company $38 million. This year he's got one assignment. Give me one more. And Herb Hodges asked, where are the men, where are the women who are thinking God's $38 million ideas? Where are the men, where are the women who will go to God and plead with him to do in and through them what they can't do themselves, but only what God can do to reach out to lost people, to show compassion to hurting people, to reach out to widows and orphans in their distress. Where are the people of God who will say, God, I need you more today than I did yesterday, and I want to see you supernaturally move in my life today more than I saw you move yesterday, and I did see you move yesterday. We can come to church We can sit down here, we can listen to messages, we can sing songs, we can go back there and eat, we can drink coffee that's too weak because it didn't process properly. We can do that! And we can walk out of these doors having been changed, none the better. We can leave these doors and just say, I enjoyed that, I had a good time, I like that. And listen, this is not about what we like. This is about tapping into the supernatural resources of God and going out there and sharing those resources with a lost and dying world. We equip and mobilize the saints to do what? To impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I beg you, try to do that on your own. Because you cannot and you will not. It's laughable to think about me impacting the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from the supernatural power of God. It's laughable for you to think about it as well. Who is thinking God's $38 million idea? I'll tell you who was. Jesus was. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Good luck. Hope it works out for you. And behold, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority has been given to me, so you go, I'll be with you always. You cannot tap out the miracle supernatural resources of God if you want to line up with him and do his will. Your vision is too small. Your life is too small. Because we can't. But he can. Hear Jesus say to you today, to us today, what he said to those disciples who had stolen that little boy's lunch, bring them to me. Bring your worries. Bring your fears. Bring your inabilities. Bring your nothing. Bring them to Jesus. Why? Because he can do what we can't do. And this is literally the gospel. God cared about us. We couldn't save ourselves, but he could. That's the gospel. God being rich in love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for the ungodly. He cared. We couldn't save ourselves. He could. And today, if you are here and you don't know Jesus... You can't save yourself. But Jesus can. And he did. That's what we celebrate here at this table. His body was broken. His blood was poured out to pay our sin debt. We sang the song, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. So you come to God and you say, I can't save myself. Will you save me? And he says, Oh, yes, I will. Oh, yes, I can, and oh, yes, I will. Because he does what we can't do. And my question that I close with here this afternoon is, do you believe in miracles? Let's pray. God, every week I hear a story of a miracle. And if I'm honest, I'm tired of seeing none at all. I don't need to see a dead man come alive. I don't need to see 25,000 people fed. All I want is for you to fill me up inside. And then to see what that miraculous power can do in and through me. And it's not about me. It is about you and your grace and your goodness and your power. My inability and your supernatural ability. God, help us to not settle for mundane, day-to-day existence that is lacking your power in our lives, to care about other people, to meet needs in other people's lives, or to see you meet our needs. God, may we be completely discontent until we are content in you and seeing your supernatural power work in us and through us. We need you more, more than the air that we breathe. Thank you for being a compassionate God who does what we can't do. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for bringing us to the point of total inability so that we can see your total ability. Thank you for this account of this miracle. May it make us hungry to see you work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? You want to hear about a miracle? Now to him 
who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said...